The world seems to be changing at breakneck speed. Perhaps nowhere are we seeing more cultural change than in our beliefs and behaviors related to sex and sexuality. Recent directives regarding transgender accommodations leave most of us scratching our heads regarding how to best respond and honor God in our homes, youth groups, churches, and schools. We'll be talking to Christian ethicist Dr. Dennis Hollinger about the Christian response to LGBTQ issues and much more on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to this next episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. Jason Soshinik is our co-host. Jason, welcome. Good to be here. Happy podcast. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't come up with anything new. I'm working on it. Okay. No, that's so, my hashtag. I think that's oh, okay, got to be that's your hashtag. Happy podcast. Okay. Well, I'll yes. come up with something new for the next one. I trust me on that. I've been working on it, but the create the creativity is just not clicking for me. Jason, I am. Uh, I, I, we've been tracking a little bit with uh, this is our ninth episode and with the first eight episodes the numbers have been phenomenal i mean the response to this has been good so i just want to say on behalf of all of us thank you to everybody for yes for tuning in so and, not, I, I can't believe we've got five people listening to this it's that's a, so awesome <laughs> which, which it is because that's one more than actually puts it together because there's right. four of us here making this thing go so it makes it all worth that, it just that that is exactly it's right. a winner it's a winner Actually, that number's a little low, but we've been really it pleased is, with the number. Low, so yeah. thank you to everybody who's been listening and spreading the very word about so. this. It's been awesome. Uh, I actually saw this week we made a list of uh, must-listen-to podcasts, which was kind of cool for the first we time. Did? You know, yeah, we did. We did. I don't have it here in front of me, but I did see that on on um, you know that was floating around out there on the internet. So wait, <laughs> it was floating around. That sounds like something I hear in the high schools. It's floating around out there. It's a list we made up, and we put it on the internet, <laughs> and that is what's making the go uh, on on news. <laughs> what what's wrong with you this morning? <laughs> hey, I <laughs> you, you learn to hear all these stories, and it's like we made a list. Well, what list is it? Well, we like, did. What, what? All right, I just it's someone, I'm sure we did. I'm sure someone did. who I'm is a that. podcast listener has posted on there that. The podcast is a good one. He listed it. I mean, we were on a list with about five or six. Did you guys see it? Yeah. It's on I a list it. of about five or six podcasts. And uh, what what was there was an NPR. Was it All Things Considered that we were right on there with them? So that was kind of cool. So, wow. Um, yeah. 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 I'm, so I, I made that's it a up discerning, there a journal- that's a journalistic podcast. Our journalistic right. standard next to NPR, that's incredible. All right. You need to stop. Uh, let, let's just, just reboot yourself this morning. Okay. Can yes. you reboot? Do you get that? I, I did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's early on the West coast, isn't it? And, and I want to say this too. Uh, I want to say thanks to Chris Wagner and Kenton Hawk for all their good work on putting this together. Now that I say that right before we turn it over to them 
and they're going to have a question for us or something. Is it a question or a quiz this morning? Oh, it's a. You may want to put your mouth up a, near that microphone. Sure. It's a, maybe not. I don't know. It is a very simple stated question. You guys can feel free to elaborate as much as you would wish. All right. And I do preface this all the time by saying this is a fun segment, but I'm not sure. I all mean, right. we'll judge that afterwards because <laughs> he's got he's been on revenge to me. You oh, heard that right. in the there's, last yeah. podcast. There's, so no, he's there's no revenge in this question. Okay, right. So I get to wait longer and lose more sleep. <laughs> Great. All, All right. right. Here it is. It's very simple. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, this is easy. This is absolutely <laughs> the easiest question I've ever received. Star Wars, hands down. Feel free Boom. to explain. Oh, well... Star Trek, I mean, I just feel like it ripped off everything off of Star Wars. Well, actually, Star Wars probably ripped off everything from Star Trek. Yeah, how can Star honest. Trek rip off from Star Wars I know. when Star Trek was I about I... around before Star Wars? Well, that's how big of a fan I am. Okay. I live in a world that I believe everything is about Star Wars is right and everything about Star Trek is wrong. So I didn't even say the, the name. I, I used to say Star Trek, not Star Trek. And so that, that, that just makes Trekkies really upset. And I could potentially be saying it wrong right now. But I'll just say this. I, I've come to really like Star Trek, but Star Wars, hands down, my favorite. I mean, I had the toys. I had the Millennium Falcon is, like, by far my favorite vehicle that's not real. Um, <laughs> and uh, and Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, good, evil. I mean, heroes, villain, villains, Star, War, Star Wars embodies all that is great about uh, 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 an imaginary world. Yeah. Hey, the needle on our uh, nerd meter here just just tipped way over. Oh, you get me started on Star Wars or superheroes, the the nerd meter will break. Yeah. Well, all right, I'm going to try to answer this. And, and honestly, I don't know how. I mean, I'm going to pull a Byron Borger here. I've had this card in my pocket for a while. You know how he rejected <laughs> yes. the question? So I reject the question because, it, honestly, and people are going to hate me for this, I don't go to bed at night thinking great thoughts about either of those things. Um, I used to always say that I pride myself in the fact that I've never watched a complete episode of Star Trek, wearing that as a badge of honor, which I know doesn't sit well with some people. Um, Star Wars, I've watched the movies, and I think they're entertaining. I think they're great. But, uh, you know, if you're really pushing me for an answer, it would be Star Wars because I've watched it, and I have never watched a complete episode of Star Trek. I'm not a I'm not a science fiction or a space guy. Um, yeah. So have you gone to see the new Star Wars? You know what? I was you afraid watched... you were going to ask that question. Yeah. Not yet, because I'm telling you, and it sounds crazy as a guy who likes to study culture. Uh, to me, right now, that would almost be a chore. Really? Yeah. I Are just you it's I'm just not into the space stuff oh i was so excited i took my staff yeah that's how excited i was i mean star wars it, it was star wars yeah i do like, need to like see on. it Look, i'll admit that and yeah, Leia. i mean you know what when i'm uh, when i'm with you again in pennsylvania i think i should watch it with you all right we'll do that when when's that going to be by the way because i have to put that on the calendar and start to prepare <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna show up. It's gonna be All right, a great, okay, great, great moment. Well now now I've got now I've got that weighing on me plus the Chris Wagner revenge factor. So no, that's great. a double fact, whammy. 
what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna show up with the other five listeners that we have. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be a perfect. It'll do be a I perfect ask? Time. Do I need? Wait. All right. What C- are you gonna say, Chris? CJ Raisin may have been uh. my imaginary friend, but <laughs> CJ Raisin will haunt your dreams. Well, you know what? You just beat me to the punch there because I was gonna turn it around on you. And ask you, okay, that's that's you know we've both answered the question. How would CJ Raisin answer this? Uh, really, I, I have no idea. But all right, I, yeah, check in with him before okay, the next I'll, podcast. Next, time, next time I have a conversation with him. Yeah. Okay. Good. We knew we'd come back to that. Well, hey, Jason, <laughs> thanks for the question, guys. That was really that was easy. You guys went easy on us this time. So, all right. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about youth culture, as we always do in this first segment, and talk about yes. some of the stories and things that we're seeing happen in culture. So the guys are going to, we call this, what do we call this, two-minute drill? Two-minute drill. Or two-minute drill. So the guys are going to have a bell going, and we're going to work to stick to it. So go ahead, Jason. Give us a story. That would be great. Well, here, uh, there's, there's, there's a few that I'm excited to be able to share this morning, uh, or this, this afternoon, or this evening, depending on when Whenever people where you are, are listening, right? you're listening to this. Yes. But uh, the first is this. Pornography can actually make some people more religious, uh, a study found. That's a confusing uh, now, a title pretty, there, all right? It is. It is. And, and I, it's a very confusing title, right? Like that, that pornography could lead someone to be more religious. Um, and actually, it's, it's a lot more complicated than the title suggests. Uh, what they're actually saying, and the, the study is going to be published in the Journal of Sex uh, Research later this month. But what it looked at was um, over time, uh, depending on... Uh, how much you used pornography, it could either, uh, one, draw you away, or two, draw you closer, depending on usage, depending on uh, how frequent it was. And they, what they found is less frequent actually drove individuals away from religion, and uh, more frequent frequent actually drove uh, people towards, And it, which is a very complicated, very... Um, drawn out, and, and I have a lot of ideas of why this is probably uh, going this route, but this is what it said. The author, the one that, that put this together out of the University of Oklahoma, said uh, that pornography use may have an impact on changes in religiousness. Exposure to pornography may make people feel guilty about violating the rules of their religion, leading them to distance themselves from religious activities. The most frequent pornography viewers, on the other hand, may find ways of rationalizing their behavior. To avoid feeling at odds with the religious conviction, some may also turn to religion as a means of overcoming or atoning for a behavior that makes them feel guilty. Religious leaders in particular may find it useful to note that heavy pornography use may drive some closer to religion rather than further further away. I share this story really for this. I think that we need to be having honest um, and vulnerable conversations around the issues, um, and specifically pornography. Uh, because what we know is that it is an epidemic. You and I speak often about this, and I just think that we've got to find opportunities to engage this. And this study actually might point to those opportunities existing more than we once thought. Yeah, yeah. And let me, let me just say, when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, here's another example of our brokenness and our innate uh, desire to be, whether we know it or not, uh, you know, the scriptures say that we have eternity in our hearts. All people have eternity in our hearts. We we yearn for God, the God uh, who, because of brokenness and sin in our world, we our relationship has been broken. And what what is pornography? Pornography is a search for redemption. Uh, it's a way to, people use it as a way to um, uh, calm or squelch or anesthetize themselves to the pain of living. 
And so we need to understand it as the, you know, the addiction and the draw towards it as a spiritual thing, and that even in our brokenness, the guilt factor, I think that was good, you know, that people are going, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be yeah. doing this. And so, uh, you know, trying to assuage their guilt. All right, here's a story, um, and we've been talking quite a bit, uh, and we're going to talk more about this as time goes on because this story is developing about kids and concussions. Uh, recent study now from York University is indicating that children and youth take a lot longer because of where they're at in terms of brain development. The brain is still forming, getting wired up uh, developmentally to fully recover from a concussion. There's been a lot of talk about youth sports particularly football, and then even adult sports and some of the stories that are coming out about CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, which can only be diagnosed after death at this point. But they're saying it might take up to two years to fully recover from a concussion before a young person, a young athlete, can play as skillfully as their teammates with who have no history of concussion. Um, and pr- probably, I mean, what they're saying is what, one of the outcomes of this is, hey, we're sending kids back into the games and back onto the field too soon after concussions because what this does is makes them more vulnerable to another concussion. And, of course, we're starting to see now the connect with long-term damage uh, down the road. Uh, let me read this. The findings indicate that those in the group of uh, – in the age group of ages 8 to 16 – are not only vulnerable to concussions, but because their brain is still developing, they're neurologically more fragile than adults for performing tasks that require cognitive motor integration following a concussion. And a follow-up story to this is that just last week, Pop Warner Football, the youth uh, football league, has banned kickoffs. They're the first national football organization to do that, to eliminate kickoffs because of the, uh, the, the, the hits and the possibility of injury and concussion. Uh, in their three youngest divisions when the seasons begin this fall. And uh, those are the Tiny Mites, ages 5 to 7, the Mighty Mites, ages 7 to 9, and the Junior Peewees, ages 8 to 10. So we'll continue to track with that. Parents, just be aware. And we're called to care and steward, uh, the, you know, care for and steward the physical health of our children's bodies to the glory of God. Yes. Well, there's there's an article out of Newsweek, and it's actually uh, it was a study that was done back in 1966 comparing to um, teens today in 2015. Uh, well, not today, today is 2016, but it was 2015. The, the research was conducted, and it compared uh, teens from 1966 uh, and teens with 2015. And if you are a youth practitioner, if you are a parent, uh, this might be something that you would find highly interesting um, because you'll see some of the change. One of the things that really stood out to me, and I think that this is something that we've got to pay attention to, especially as we're working with teens, is the difference in uh, uh, racial discrimination, how teens see racial discrimination. Um, one of the things that, that took place in 1966, if you remember, was a civil rights movement. And, and um, in 2015, if you remember, some of the many race riots and some of the many things that, that have happened in the news because of um, all uh, Black Lives Matter, some of those um, other instances that we're, we're seeing, I, I think that it's interesting when you look at the data. In fact, in 1966, um, 33% of black teens thought racial discrimination would be a problem for their, for their generation, which is, which is really interesting, 33%, because I would have thought it would have been higher in the 60s, especially in the midst of the, the civil rights movement. Among black teens, 20- yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, um, in 2015, 91% of black teens think racial discrimination will be a problem for their generation. Now, compare that with um, in 1966, overall, 44% of all teens thought racial discrimination would be a problem. So that included all teens. Right, not, not just, just black um, teens, yeah. Yes. And in 2015, 82% of teens think racial discrimination will be a problem for their generation. So this is something I think that we've really got to uh, listen to. I know that um, in future podcasts, we're going to have some uh, conversations around culture, around ethnicity, around race, which I'm really excited about. But I think that um, when you go to the study, I, I would pay special attention to this. I think that there is something that is happening with race in our culture today, and we need to be aware of that as practitioners, and especially as individuals that believe in, in the, a creator that made us all in the image of God. Right. Yeah, that's and we, we will follow up on that at some point here with some of our discussions. Let, let me shift gears here and move over to the world of uh, drug abuse and the CDC, the DEA, and other organizations here that track drug trends are now warning us about a new trend. And it just, Jason, it seems like all the time, you know, if there's something new that we can abuse, we can figure out a way to abuse something, we will, we will do it. But the new thing is fentanyl. And most people are familiar with fentanyl, the fentanyl patch, you know, uh, other ways that fentanyl is administered. It's a very potent painkiller that's a legitimate prescription uh, drug. It is... Um, prescribed by doctors primarily for cancer treatment, but now it's being made illicitly and sold on the streets, and what it's doing is delivering a super high that uh, far too often leads to death. In fact, Ohio last year, well, in 2014, reported 514 fentanyl-related deaths, which was up from 93 reported fentanyl-related deaths in 2013. That's just an example from one state. And um, this is something that parents and youth workers need to be warning kids about. It's sometimes pursued fentanyl uh, deliberately and knowingly, and other times it's just added uh, to other to other drugs. So it's laced, being laced in other drugs. But it, it is a, a synthetic opioid pain reliever approved for treating severe pain, uh, typically, as I said, advanced cancer pain. Listen to this. It is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, and it's now being sold illicitly in the illegal drug markets for its heroin-like effect. And many times it's being mixed with heroin or with cocaine as a combination product, as I said before, with or without the user's knowledge uh, to increase its euphoric effects, and many, many times it is deadly. So again, this is where we need to be warning our kids who experiment with things about this and digging deeper into uh, beyond just the symptoms of drug abuse to deal with the heart issues and the pain that leads kids to abuse drugs. Yeah, and if you come to this article, I would just highly recommend, there was one paragraph that stood out out of all of it that just showed the stats, the the dramatic increase over a a one-year period that is happening uh, uh, with use of this. And so it's from state to state, it's it's increasing 10, 20-fold. It's crazy. The next story that I have, um, you've heard a lot about the stories. Everything today is, is a lie. Um, uh, it's an article that was uh, that was posted uh, specifically by the New York Post, which I find highly interested. But uh, it, it actually tackled some of the many stories that are going on in today's media. So you had um, uh, Sherry and um, Ozzy Osbourne, who are now getting uh, or are 
are proclaiming they're getting a divorce. Maybe you've heard about Beyonce's new album uh, with regards to some of the relationship infidelities that happened in her marriage with Jay-Z uh, to, to then Donald Trump. And here's what, what this article did a great job of pointing out. And I, I really think that, that we need to be able to pay attention to some of this because we have a lot uh, – uh, what, what celebrities have done we, – we hear a lot about trolling. Um, what celebrities are now doing is, is essentially trolling their audiences and, and getting them to get worked up. Um, you see that example from Game of Thrones, uh, which is a popular TV series with Jon Snow, who was supposed to be dead, now is back alive. We have Megan Trainer, who made a big deal, a big stink about um, some photographing uh, or photoshopping that, that took place. Uh, we, we see the infidelities being proclaimed on Lemonade, Beyonce's new album. And then we also now see Sharon Osbourne, and then obviously the, the keen queens of this are the Kardashians. But... I think that what we're seeing is now, and we saw this in the political campaign. We see this with Donald Trump. Um, it's a it's a new um, new generation of trolling that that exists in real life in real time that's causing us to get involved. And essentially, what the New York Post says is, uh, we uh, hate watch. We we hate watch, and we follow people we dislike online. Uh, celebrity blog posts, stories of pregnancies, marriages, divorces, rehab stints, um, gender reassignments, with co uh, and then and then uh, commenters wondering if it's real, if it's not real. They're drawing us in, and so and, and what uh, specifically is going on um, with regards to Sharon and Ozzy? They they proclaim they're getting a divorce, but then a few days later they were seen snuggling and cuddling, and so so. We're being drawn into this, and I think that we've just got to make sure that we, we have a critical lens with the things that we're seeing. That's why I love so much what we're doing uh, at CPYU with looking at the soup of our culture, really examining it, understanding it, because be, be beneath the surface, there's a lot more going on than what we see. Right, and what we need to do as parents and youth workers is point these things out as we encounter them to teach our kids how to discern, and especially at the level of being manipulated. Well, this is good. I love talking about this. Um, we're going to transition, take a break here, and Jason, I am really excited. You're going to get to uh, meet a friend of mine when we come back, and we're going to have a discussion with him. Dr. Dennis Hollinger is the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's also an ethicist. He's written extensively on ethics, and particularly, uh, particularly sexual ethics, and we're going to pick his brain a little bit on some of the issues that are facing us in culture related to the LGBTQ conversation, uh, certainly some of the things that are coming up right now with, uh, in the news with schools and transgendered bathrooms. So we're going to pick his brain on that, and I found him to be a very helpful resource. So when we come back, we're going to have a great conversation with Dr. Dennis Hollinger. Stay with us. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate the difficult landscape of the emerging digital frontier to the glory of God, we've launched a digital kids initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our digital kids initiative and a growing number of free resources and downloads by visiting the website at digitalkidsinitiative.com. This is one more way that we're helping you lead your kids to live lives where their faith in God is integrated into the growing amount of time they're spending with social media and technology. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. We are really excited about what we're going to talk about now. Actually, more so, Jason, who we're going to talk to, and that's Dr. Dennis Hollinger, 
who is the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a place I w- I've been privileged to graduate from uh, twice. And uh, Dennis is not only the president there, he's also the Coleman M. Mockler Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics. And uh, he holds other um, other uh, uh positions and things elsewhere in terms of uh, Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Uh, he's got a great resume, and I've just found Dennis to be a very helpful thinker on numerous issues, especially those related to sexuality. And Jason, you know, you and I with CPYU here, we spend a lot of time talking to youth workers and parents about issues of sexuality through our sexual integrity initiative. So it's going to be great to talk to Dennis, particularly about his book, uh, The Meaning of Sex, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I have personally found that to be an extremely helpful book uh, to frame conversations about biblical sexualities. I know you have as well, Jason. So It's a great book. Yeah, yeah. it's an incredible book. We, we, We pass it along to each of our volunteers. Uh, and ask them to read it because it's a, it's a great tool for, for both conversation and, and knowledge, especially in the arena of sex, sexuality, and relationship. Yeah, good. Well, let me ask this question before we jump into that discussion because, Dennis, you're up on the North Shore of Massachusetts in, in what I always say is the most absolutely beautiful setting to ever study. I mean, it is just um, amazing. But let me ask you, because Gordon Conwell is so near and dear to my heart, what's what's happening now up at the seminary? Any great news you can give us about uh, what's happening up there? Well, we've just come through graduation, and that's always a wonderful time to see people complete their studies at Gordon Conwell, head off into a broad array of ministries. Uh, our students will head into the pastorate, to the mission field. Some will head on to further doctoral Uh, studies to uh, go into teaching. Some will go into counseling. Some will work for parachurch organizations, the kind of organizations you guys head up. And uh, some will serve Christ in the marketplace. We have one of the initiatives that I love here, Gordon-Conwell, is a center for workplace theology and business ethics. Our former professor in that area just retired. We've made a new appointment, guy coming from Oxford who had been in the corporate world for 25 years. And uh, all of that is richly exciting to me because it helps people going into ministry think about how do I connect Sunday to Monday in my ministry with people who are living in the trenches, if you will. So uh, that is of great excitement. We've added a, a new person thanks to a significant grant that was given to us in the area of discipleship. This person will really spend 50% of their time discipling students as well as teaching courses in discipleship. I think that bodes well for the future and for our ministry in serving the church. Mm. And that's really what we're about, is wow. serving the church. Yeah, can I can I ask you just real quickly, um, the, the professor that left, was that, are you talking about David Gill? David Gill, just yeah. retired, that's okay. right. Okay, we, yeah. we, I'm just going to mention because... You know, some people equate a seminary education with, quote-unquote, professional ministry, and, um, you know, that you have to be in residence to learn. And uh, I'll tell you, one of the great things that David Gill was involved in just a couple of years ago was uh, an on-campus couple-of-day seminar, and I know you were there, on um, social media and technology. Yeah. And it was wonderful to see lay people come in, uh, not just from the community, but from elsewhere, to sit for a couple of days to really hear some great cutting-edge uh, thought that was biblically based on yeah. how we can best 
glorify God through this wonderful gift of technology. And it was fun to listen to David Gill. That was really my first exposure to him. So um, all that to say, the seminary is about a lot more than just uh, ministerial education, I think, as you're mentioning here. So it's a, it's a great resource for, um, for all kinds of people. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, that's, Give a, yeah. Well, th- that's incredible. Well, one of the things you did mention is uh, the, the, the School of Ethics that, uh, that you were uh, mentioning, and uh, it's something that you bring up very often in, in your book, it's, especially as an ethicist. So maybe for those that are listening to our podcast, could you describe the discipline of ethics and specifically as it relates to Christian sexual eth- or Christian yeah. ethics? And, and I think it's important, Jason, to make that distinction. You have, of course, uh, ethics as a broad field that can be studied in, say, a philosophy department. Uh, it's usually uh, looked at from a more naturalistic standpoint, uh, either basing ethical judgments on uh, reason or basing it on uh, good outcomes, uh, Uh, what we call utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Christian ethics is very different than that. And I think when many people think about Christian ethics, they think in terms of rules and principles. Uh, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit uh, fornication. And I think what's important is to get behind all of that and to say, why did God give us the commands that we have in Scripture? So the heart of a sexual a Christian sexual ethic, for example, is not just you shall not commit adultery. It's really understanding the meaning of sex. And therefore, the commandments uh, that we have in Scripture flow out of the meaning and the nature of sexuality. And that's the way it is for all of Christian ethics. Christian ethics is really a reflection on the tough moral questions that we face in the world today, whether that be in the world of medicine, in law, in business everyday kind of ethics that we all encounter, our responsibilities of living in our communities, in our society. And it is reflecting on that in light of the larger Christian worldview. Uh, That is, we have a, a narrative, the biblical narrative. I think the best way to understand that is creation, fall, redemption, and a final consummation, final restoration, if you will. And Christian ethics is really exploring the tough issues that we face today in light of that larger narrative. So when we deal with Christian ethics, we're asking the question, uh, what is the right, the good, and the just uh, in the midst of the world in which we live as Christians? Uh, and, And so that goes a lot further than just simply the commandments. It seems to me we make two mistakes when we think about ethics. For some people, it's just merely a list of commandments. Do this, don't do this. Or on the other hand, uh, many people, particularly in a secular world today, turn ethics into what feels good, what feels right to me. It becomes very self-oriented, and particularly in the postmodern world in which we live, uh, that's a tendency. And it certainly has impacted the church as well. So just a follow-up question there, Dennis, in terms of cultural change, uh, how have you seen ethics in the mainstream culture morph uh, over the last few years, I'm assuming you've seen that. Yeah, uh, making an assumption there, and and I'm guessing as well that most people, we we all have an ethical system. Would it be accurate? So it's a two-part question. Would it be accurate to say that most people don't have a structured, well thought-out, conscious ethical system? It's just something that they have uh, 
assumed because they're drinking or from or swimming in the cultural soup. Yeah, I think there are two things that happen. Some of our at least ethical behavior is impulsive. Uh, that it, it's simply a, a response to what's happening internally in our lives or what's happening in the culture. And in that situation, people don't think about it. On the other hand, uh, all of our ethics, I contend, flows out of a worldview, some kind of a worldview. And so as you have shifts in worldviews, you're naturally going to see shifts in ethics. And if I could boil down to the major shift that I have seen in the field of ethics, uh, both theoretically, but also just in everyday ethics where people live their lives day in and day out. It's a movement away from the idea that there are givens in reality uh, to the notion that we create our own reality. And when you create your own reality, then it is mainly an ethic of what best serves me, what serves my own feelings, what serves my, in, my own impulses. Uh, throughout most of history, ethics was always orienting my life to something external to myself. Today, ethics is more orienting uh, ethics to what I feel internally. That's a major shift. And so even when you look at secular ethics, and we could use the example of the philosopher Aristotle in the ancient world. Uh, Aristotle believed that there was an end or purpose to things. He believed there was meaning and essence to things. You had what I like to call simply givens in reality. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, the church could actually utilize Aristotle's thought, as it did in the Middle Ages through the theologian Thomas Aquinas, to actually talk about what ethics looks like, because Aristotle had an ethic that at least in, to some degree was compatible with a biblical ethic, with a Christian ethic. And that is the, the thing that I think has changed most in our world today. There's no longer that assumption that there are givens to which I can form my life. Rather, we can form ethics to my own life. Mm. This, this is, what you're saying here is, is so important and yet often left unaddressed. It's not thought about, and particularly among parents and youth workers, and I would even go so far as to say pastors, that they're not thinking about these issues, the power of worldviews, the, the very subtle way that worldviews sneak yeah. in and direct people's uh, beliefs and resulting behaviors. And then, we, and then we, we stand as the church and we scratch our heads and we're going, well, how did this happen? Or <laughs> when did this happen? Or how did we get to yeah. this point? You know, yeah. we're stumped by it, yeah. which, which again, and I'm going to go back to this, just um, and I can't push this enough in my world, um, but the importance of theological education for all types of people to, you know, think consciously about what it is we believe and why and what the implications of this are. And this is what the beauty of your book, The Meaning of Sex, is. And I love, you know, when I first read it, um, not only was it great. But I love the way you go back to the biblical story, the biblical meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and mm. couch it in that because that's exactly. It was very affirming for us because Jason and I we we talk about um, God's big yes for sexuality that sex and sexuality are a good thing declared good, yeah. and then how to see it in that unfolding story. So the book is basically, um, you know, it's built around that. But talk a little bit about it, because this is this is a book that I think is really important 
for parents and youth workers and pastors to engage with. And I want to say this, Dennis, that it is very accessible because a lot of times, you know, we're talking to a seminary uh, president, we're talking to a professor, we're talking (laughs) to an ethicist. This is not a book that's, you know, out there and you're reading it going, what in the world is this guy saying? It is so down to earth and practical that I often tout it as just a great manual for anyone who wants to think about and talk about sexuality from a biblical perspective, or just think about and talk about sexuality uh, to, to, to use. So talk a little bit about the book. Yeah, well, I, I certainly wanted to write it in a way that would be accessible. And uh, the book gets used in seminary classes, college classes, uh, by pastors, but also by a lot of lay people. And uh, I really wanted to write it in that way so it was usable and so it was helpful for people. Uh, one of the things I really attempt to do in the book is not just exegete scripture and uh, talk about our theological framework, but also exegete the culture. That's something we talk a lot about here at Gordon-Conwell, and I think it's a mistake that a lot of pastors uh, uh, fall into. They exegete the biblical text very well, but we live in a context. We live in a culture, a society, and you've got to make a connection between those two. The cultural context is not our norm. It doesn't determine our ethic, but we have to find ways of building bridges between the biblical story and the world in which we live. And to understand the world in which we live, we have to exegete that world while exegeting Holy Scripture. And I think that's very important. That's part of what I attempt to do in the book. What I really set out to do in this book is, first of all, really talk about what the meaning of sex is theologically. And I talk, for example, about the fact that it's uh, the starting point is it's a good gift of God. You find that right off the bat in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates a very physical, material world. At the apex of that creation, he creates man and woman in his image. Very first commandment, have sex, reproduce. Uh, And and so right from the beginning, there's an affirmation of the goodness. Uh, At at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, you have this wonderful phrase, God looked at everything he had made. Behold, it was very good. And so the goodness is a starting point. We think about the meaning, and then I go on to talk about why did God give this gift to us. And I outline four major purposes, that it is, uh, first, a consummation of marriage. It completes the marriage act. Secondly, it's a reproductive act. It brings new life into the world. And that's true, by the way, of all of nature. Uh, Sex is throughout all of nature, and I think we often forget that. Uh, Third, it's an expression of love. And fourth, it's an act of pleasure. And uh, so often we have negated the concept of pleasure in the, the, the Christian understanding of things. We think of pleasure in a very negative terms. And what I want to do is say, no, there are temporal pleasures that God gives us that are really for our enjoyment. And in some ways, they are a foretaste of the ultimate pleasure we experience in oneness with God. Uh, That's why you have some people who will actually refer to sex as a sacrament. Uh, That is, it's an act that points to a greater oneness, to a greater joy. Uh, And and so those are the kind of things I attempt to uh, look at in the first part of the book where I talk about the meaning of sex. And then we jump into the big issues that we're facing in our world today. But you can't jump to the big issues until you've really explored what is the meaning? Why did God give this gift to us? Well, you know, the reality is that one of the biggest issues in the church right now is that that just at the, at its most basic level with Genesis 1 and 2, which you were talking about there, 
you know, prior to the fall, um, we don't get it. We, we have this sense because we were not talked too well maybe by our parents or talked too well by the church. We have this sense that it's a hush-hush topic, and yeah. if God has anything to say about it, Jason, as you talk about, you know, it's a big no. And mm-hmm. rather, mm-hmm. It, it actually is, when we look at creation, God's big yes. So yeah. It, yeah. you're right. How can we talk about the issues, and how can we engage with a world that needs to have discussions about the issues, and in um, compelling ways talk about a Christian view of sexuality if we are just talking about it in negative ways and not in that in that bigger story. Yeah. So that's a that's a great part of what you've done here. Yeah, and, and that's really vital, Walt. Um, I often, when I speak on this issue, especially to younger people, I've all, often asked them, how many of you feel that you got adequate sex education from your churches? Uh, usually it's about 20%. And then I'll ask, how many of you feel you got adequate sex education from your parents? It might go up slightly, maybe 25, 30%. I've never had a group where it's 50% of the younger people, and this would include college students uh, or, or young adults, who've said, I feel like I got adequate sex education. Uh, mostly what they heard was a no. They never heard the yes. They never heard the larger picture. And uh, no wonder we're struggling in this issue, not only in society, but in the church today. So we've got to begin to deal with it. Well, this is, this is good. Let me, uh, Jason, do you have a question real quick? Well, I just I, I find what you're saying uh, really fascinating. It, it, it works hand in hand with what I see all the time with both parents, uh, but then also teens that we work with. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm going back to even what you started this uh, segment with, and the idea of ethics versus Christian ethics, and specifically Christian sexual ethics. So I'm 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 really uh, I'm tracking with what you're saying, and I and I think a lot about how. How um, it's not just even an understanding of Genesis one and two, which Walt just brought up a second ago. I wonder how much it has to do with how we understand Christian sexual ethics and then how we engage those ethics. Because uh, yeah. so much of what we think of when it comes to sex, when we communicate it, the ethic around it is no, rather than even the four embodiments that you mentioned, um, and and allowing that to be. Uh, the way in which we dry, dive into it. Is that, is that mm-hmm. something that you see is, um, as, as, as you think about this with regards to the, the, the way we see Christian sexual ethic then driving the conversation that happens around this? Yeah, I, I think the real challenge for us is how do we implement our Christian ethics in the life of the church and in the world? And, and this brings me to a, a distinction that I often make when I talk about ethics, and I do so in my book. It's the distinction between Christian ethics pastoral care, and public policy. Now, what's interesting is those three get conflated. They get uh, merged together as if they're the same thing in the discourse that goes on in our society today. They're three very different things. They're three very different languages, if you will. Christian ethics is the norm. That is, it's God's design of what he calls us to do and to be. And I emphasize the do and the be. It's our actions as well as our character. Uh, It's rooted in scripture. It's rooted in God's own character and nature. It's rooted in the biblical story. It's a high, it's a holy calling. It's the norm. 
even though we may struggle to reach that norm, it's the standard beyond our own selves, beyond our own innards. It's what we call Christians to be and to do. Pastoral care is the care and the compassion, the mercy and love we show to people in a broken world, often in situations where they have not reached the norm or they have uh, lived a life in conflict with God's norm. And this really comes to the fore, I think, when we're dealing with sexuality issues, because, for example, when we're dealing with LGBTQ issues, you will often hear, well, we need to be compassionate, we need to be caring. Absolutely. But that's the pastoral care side. That doesn't change the ethic. And what a lot of people do is they reduce the ethic down to compassion and care. When we show compassion, care, when we listen, when we empathize, that is, get inside the uh, life of another person in their own struggles, uh, what we are doing at that point is really a pastoral care, which is so vital if people are going to hear the ethic. Sometimes people can never hear the biblical ethic because they're so weighed down by their own interpersonal struggles whatever those struggles might be. Some of them may be sexual in nature, some of them may be other in other areas of life. There, we are called definitely to listen clearly. I mean, as I've talked to uh, persons who struggle with homosexuality, you hear deep pain in their stories. Uh, you hear a lot of inward struggle. Uh, very few ask to feel these, these feelings that they have. This wasn't something that they just woke up one morning and said, ah, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to feel. Uh, for some reason, we don't understand why, uh, and psychologists don't understand why. You can look at the uh, American Psychological Association website, and uh, very explicitly it says, we do not yet know the causes of, of same-sex attraction. And so for persons who struggle with this, the church has to show a great deal of pastoral care. But that care is not the ethic. Yes, I have an ethical responsibility to show that care, but sexuality is not reduced to compassion and care. And then you have the third whole area, and that's the public policy side, our life in common in a very complex, very pluralistic world. Now, there have been those attempts at times throughout the history of the church to develop a theocracy, uh, whereby we try to impose a Christian ethic, a biblical ethic, onto non-believing people, onto a pluralistic society. Uh, often it has backfired. And uh, I think in our own journey in this area of sexuality today, uh, we have often forgotten there's a difference between the ethic of a Christian, what we call Christians to and the church to, and the, uh, the standards, if you will, in a pluralistic society. It's a very complex area to talk about what is the relationship of Christian ethics to that larger uh, public policy arena. And I think many of the areas we're dealing with today, whether it be in the, the transgender issues or uh, issues of conscience with regards to gay marriage, for example, uh, really bring the interface of the Christian ethic and the, uh, the public policy, the legal dimension, uh, it brings it into very bold relief, if you will. And so we're struggling with that. And however we land on that issue, what you expect can be achieved in a pluralistic society, Christians may deal with. But you've got to realize they're not the same and they're very complex. Mm. This is good. I, you know, I, I first heard Dennis 
talk about this in our doctor to ministry cohort in ministry to the emerging generations. We had him come in, and he laid out these three arenas of uh, you know the foundation of Christian ethics for the Christian, uh, the issue of pastoral care. You know, for a parent, a Christian parent or a Christian youth worker, this is our son. This is our daughter. Uh, That's right. This is the young person who comes into the youth group <clears throat> with a uh, complex situation related to the LGBTQ, um, um, you know, lifestyle or, or same-sex attraction. And then uh, public policy, which now this is really coming to the forefront now in our culture with some of the directives that are being issued very quickly. I mean, this is unfolding fast, and it does make your head spin. So these are these are this is a great um, differentiation here. And I want to come back. We're going to take a break, but I want to come back and flesh this out a little bit more. Talk about this, unpack this a little bit. Maybe we can throw a couple of uh, specific situations at you if you think that's fair. And you know, it's, how, how could we advise people on this? So we're talking to Doc. Dr. Dennis Hollinger, who's the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a Christian ethicist and and the author of a great book that we love here at CPYU, The Meaning of Sex, Christian Ethics and the Moral Life, which is published by Baker Books. We'll tell you more about that at the end and how to get that, but we'll be back right after this. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our sexual integrity initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Youth Culture Matters. We're having a great discussion right now with Dr. Dennis Hollinger, who is the author of The Meaning of Sex and who is also the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary uh, with multiple campuses, I guess. You're in South Hamilton, Jacksonville, Charlotte, and in the inner city of Boston Boston, as well. Yeah, right. So uh, uh, just a great and wonderful place that... um, has invested a lot uh, in Center for Parent Youth Understanding just because so much of, uh, of what we do here has been shaped by my time at Gordon-Conwell and uh, even the time of some of our associate staff members up there. Um, Dennis, it's, it's been fun to get to know you over the years. And it's, you know, we're based here in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. You graduated from Elizabethtown College which is right around the corner, a, uh, a private liberal arts school. And then um, also, and I didn't know this, but I saw this, you were the youth pastor, was it three years while you were? Uh, for two years. Two years at CBC, which used to be known uh, here locally as Congregational Bible Church and is now, is it now Community Bible Church? Community Bible Church. Community Bible Church. Bible yeah. Church. So, yeah. Yeah. And actually, am I in error to think, did, someone was a pastor there who was related to you, correct? That's that's right. Well, first of all, my father was on the pastoral staff. Okay. But my wife's uncle, John Heaston, was the founding pastor of the church, and he was the uh, senior pastor when I uh, came on board. Yeah. Boy, you know, I'm with all these connections. I'm actually surprised they didn't name the church after you. You know, the Mennonites <laughs> do that around here. Everything's got a last name than yeah. the church. So, 
but that's that's probably good they didn't anyway Mueller Methodist there you go (laughs) well now you're wrong there because I'm Presbyterian well with the Presbyterian yeah that's right right so all right so we do this fun little thing here to get to know you a little bit we call it take five we're gonna fire I'm I'm gonna fire five questions at you and uh, these are these are fairly easy um, but just answer off the top of your head, so we'll get to know you a little bit. And uh, uh, these, I think, this will be helpful for people too. So, uh, so number one, here you go. You ready? Yep. Uh, what is the best part of living on the North Shore of Boston? Uh, being near the ocean. Okay, and it We've is got be- ocean on either side of us. Oh yeah, it is beautiful, beautiful, yeah. absolutely beautiful up there, and and very different from the beaches that most people are familiar with because there's a lot of rock. And not a lot of sand, but it's it's beautiful. All right, number two, if uh, you could, if I, if we were to give you a ticket to see anybody in concert, living or dead, who would you want to go see? Oh my! And we'd assume that they'd be living. So if you say Elvis, what, you know he'll be he'll be live. You'll you'll get to see him. Uh, see you know, I've always loved Mozart, so I would have loved to have seen Mozart perform okay. live. All yeah. right. Okay. I love and classical music. Yeah, that's it. That's a good thing. Uh, number three, we'll go back to New England here. And I'm assuming you like this food, but what's the best place to get clam chowder in New England? Are well, you a clam uh, chowder my, fan? My favorite place is Shays in Essex, down oh, the yeah. road from about five miles from yep, there. Yep, I've uh, eaten there. The, the clam chowder is made, I think, with full cream. Okay. It's incredible. One bowl of clam chowder and you're full. Okay. See, this is good. The other yeah. guys who are with working with us, they don't get it uh, because they haven't been up there and they're not clam chowder aficionados. See, Jason yeah. looks confused too. But, I'm, well, I'm on yeah. the West Coast. Clam chowder, I mean, we, we have Seattle, but I'm, I'm not a seafood person. Okay. And, and some people even eat Manhattan clam chowder, which isn't the same thing yeah, as New England I don't clam go chowder. Down that road. No, no, nothing against Manhattan, but it's just that's just totally different. You're right. Okay. So, number four, last movie that you and Marianne went to see together. The last movie we went to see together. Oh, my goodness. Or maybe you watched uh, it, at home. Uh, it, it was the one on the sex scandal. Um, uh, yeah, Spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good excellent, movie. Excellent film. Yeah, well, and, well done. Yeah, yeah. It was an excellent film, rather eye-opening. And a little trivia thing here that I, I found out that that was actually – either written or co-written, the screenwriter went to uh, the high school I graduated from outside oh, wow. of Philadelphia. So, uh. All right, now here's the big one. All right, this is, a, this is number five. Why, in your opinion, should someone come to Gordon-Conwell Seminary uh, to be involved in the Doctor of Ministry to Ministry to Emerging Generations track, <laughs> including, here we go, commercial, including the new cohort that's going to be starting uh, in June of 2017? Well, People the, best, re- the yeah. best reason for coming is because Walt Mueller is the uh, one of the main professors in it, and uh, Walt is in touch with youth culture, emerging generations, and he'll help you think about how to minister effectively in the kind of world we live in today. Do I make who do I make the check out to? Uh, you can well, make it out to Gordon Conwell. <laughs> well, you know, and you know that the other two, really. Up. I mean, that was it. That was that yeah, was. Yeah, you've nice got a great cohort way, with yeah, we do. Uh, Duffy Robbins and Adonis Bidu, a Romanian theologian. You got a great group to work oh, with. Oh, it is. It is just. You know what? And it's. A, I'll just say thank you to you because it is a privilege to be able to come up there on that campus and do that. And um, we've got. We're in. It, we're with our third group now, and we just graduated five. 
uh, yeah. from from uh, previous cohorts at the last graduation a couple of weeks ago, and it is it is just rich. And I say this all the time. It you know when when the time is coming to make the trip up there. Um, it, I'm like a little kid before Christmas. Uh-huh. It is exciting, That's and great. I learn probably more than anybody in there. Cohort learning is awesome, and to be able to do it up there. So thanks to Gordon Conwell for having a vision for that. And, and anyone, thanks to you, Walt, for being part of it. Well, thanks. And, and I, um, you know, anybody who's interested in, in uh, hearing more about the next cohort can, can contact us, and we'd love to tell them more about that. So we do have fun, Adonis and Duffy and myself. All right, uh, let's let's continue our conversation here. We're talking about Christian ethics, uh, in particular related to sexual ethics, which is on our minds. Everybody is talking about matters of sexuality and identity and marriage, and there's just so much we can speak into this, uh, obviously from a Christian perspective, because God is the maker of all this, the designer of all this. So let, let's uh, continue to talk about this in some very practical ways. Yeah, let's do. I, I, I want to jump right into some of the hotbed issues, specifically around LGBT, um, because I know that we're going to have a lot of listeners that are going to have questions, because uh, you, you're giving a lot of really good content uh, with regards to the meaning of sex. And one of the, the hotbed issues that we have when it comes to sex is, is uh, LGBT, specifically those that are s- uh, struggling with same-sex attraction. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear from you some of our response. You know, we, we have individuals that are in our churches, um, uh, parents who have uh, teens and young adults who are uh, in um, same-sex uh, attraction relationships. And uh, and, and I, I'm just curious, how, what, what is our response? How do we engage in that as Christians, as individuals that are followers of Christ? Yeah. Well, here, I think the distinction between the Christian ethic, the norm, and the pastoral care is so vital. Uh, I think what we have to realize is we want to get people to accept the biblical norm. The question is, how do we start with where they are either in a relationship, as you may have in a in the case of, of, of uh, two lesbians or two gay males, uh, and uh, how do we get them from where they are now to truly accepting the biblical norm? And I think it's a matter of holding together two things that the church has always had difficulty holding together. That is truth and love. Uh, I I love the passage in John 1 that describes the incarnate Christ coming full of grace and truth. And whatever we do practically in dealing with these issues, those two have to be held together. We don't have a good record in holding those together. Truth means that we really stand on the side of what the Word of God says, and we get to the theological framework and the theological understanding. Love means that we show the very same kind of grace and mercy that Christ has shown to us in our own waywardness, in our sinfulness and fallenness. So let me give you a concrete example. Uh, Marianne, my wife and I, have uh, friends, a couple, who have a daughter who uh, is a lesbian. Uh, She is living with this partner. And the way they have attempted to work at this is that when the two of them come to their home, they're welcome in the home, but they've made it very clear that when they're in their home because of their convictions, they can't sleep together. Now, they know that they're living together, they're sleeping together, they're engaging in uh, in gay sex, uh, 
but it's their way of saying, look, uh, you are always welcome to come back home. But there is a limit here. There's a concrete standard that we hold. And uh, I think these are the kinds of things that whereby we can make a statement and yet at the same time show love to our children. Uh, one of the questions I'm probably most often asked is, what do I do uh, when I'm invited to a gay wedding? I have a, a cousin and uh, they have a partner. They're going to get married. I've been invited to the wedding. I have a sibling. Uh, what do I do? And I think that uh, partly what you do is what you feel your presence or absence will communicate to that couple. If they know your convictions, I think probably it's legitimate to attend the wedding, not to give a blessing to that union, but rather to say, I love you as my brother, my sister, my sibling, my friend, what, whatever the person is. And yet at the same time, to be able to say, you know what my convictions are and what my standards are. Now, those are the kind of concrete situations where holding truth and love together are pretty difficult. Uh, but the love side would say, ah, I just go. I don't worry about it. You know, I just tell them I love them. And uh, almost sending a message, what you're doing is fine. On the other hand, if you don't go, you're really cutting off all communications in the future. You're, you're cutting off the potential of working with that person, loving them, enabling them to truly understand God's designs and try to move to the norm. So this is a good example, I think, of where you're showing a pastoral care, and yet at the same time, you're very clear about what God's norm and what God's design is. So those are the kind of concrete situations I think we're going to face more and more in the days ahead, but it's keeping that distinction of the norm and the care uh, separate from each other, even as they interface each other. It, it, Dennis, if you were still working in youth ministry, we have a lot of people who are youth workers who are listening to this. You've talked about parents. If you were if you were still working in youth ministry, as these situations start to arise and some of the questions we're hearing from youth workers, you know, how do we integrate these kids into our youth group? Or, you know, what mm -hmm. do we do in a retreat situation? Now, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm asking big questions here, but is there any guidance you can give us um, in general terms that could, could help us frame how we think about this, you know, a, a starting point yeah. uh, for a youth worker? Well, I think uh, it's always important in terms of building bridges to, to hear stories of people. And uh, I think one of the things that we have to help our young people get over is what we commonly call homophobia. Uh, that is fear and anger, hostility towards gays. Uh, but in so doing, we need to make sure that they're maintaining a conviction. And so obviously, Walt, the starting point there is to, uh, on the one hand, hear some stories of people who really struggled. So if you have a person in the youth group to interview that person, if they're open to doing that and saying, this is the struggle I've had. And yet at the same time, as the youth leader, be able to say, uh, this is what we believe God's norm and design is. Uh, when I pastored in Washington, D.C., we had a lot of people who struggled with the, with the issue uh, in their own personal life. In this case, it happened to be more males, more gay males. Uh, we were very clear, however, first of all, uh, as a church, as to what our uh, convictions were. And the, the statement we had was not just about the gay issue. 
it was a statement about sexuality with application. You make a mistake if a church or an organization focuses primarily on the gay issue. That's not the biggest sexuality issue we're facing in the church. I mean, I was speaking at a pastor's conference last year, and I was dealing with sexuality issues, and some of the pastors said, hey, biggest issue we face isn't 22-year-olds shacking up, nor is it uh, gay people uh, living together. The biggest issue we've got is 75-year-olds who are shacking up. Uh, they've, they've lost a spouse. They don't want to get married for financial reasons. And, uh, and yet they're living together, having sex together. So I think we have to recognize this is a much, much broader issue. And as we deal with the issue in the church, deal with sexuality in general. Don't pick on the LGBTQ issues. The shifts that have gone on on the LGBTQ issues are shifts about sexuality in general. And those represent larger shifts about ethics in general. So keep that in mind. I think that's very important. So if you're going to deal with the issue in, uh, let's say, with a, a group of young people at a, at a youth retreat, I, I think if you have some people who can talk about their own experience and maybe some people who have struggled with this issue and have also been able to vic be victorious over it. Uh, contrary to what American Psychological Association says, there are people who do change. Uh, the book entitled Ex-Gays, InterVarsity Press, documents as the longitudinal study that there are people who've changed. I've married people. I've performed weddings for people uh, who once lived a gay lifestyle and have gone on to be able to live a, uh, a heterosexual, have a heterosexual marriage and very successfully so. Does that mean they never have temptations anymore? They never struggle with the issue? No, not at all. Uh, as one former colleague said to me one time, uh, I, was, I was asking him, he had lived a gay lifestyle for a number of issues um, and then had a spiritual awakening and uh, through counseling and through spiritual help went on to have uh, a change and have a successful marriage. And I said to him, I said, do you still ever struggle with the issue? He said, of course I do. But he said, whereas once it was like a camel in a tent, now it's like an annoying gnat. And so still there, but no longer the pronounced issue in his life. And so, you know, in a, in a situation with young people, having people tell their stories, both of success as well as struggle, and then being able to really couch, I think, the, the meaning of sex for young people, couch it in a very meaningful way, uh, I think is helpful. And in the midst of that, talk about how we walk with people in the midst of their struggles in life. And it's not only this issue, it's a whole host of issues where we have to walk with people in the midst of their brokenness. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about that specifically. How do we give us some understanding to help us walk with people now as we're talking more and more about transgenderism, you know, being transgender. We're hearing that a lot there. It's in the paper. It's on the front page of the paper. Uh, it's being dealt with here in Pennsylvania now yeah. uh, with school districts as it is everywhere after the president came out with those guidelines. Help us understand that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to understand some differences here. There's a difference between the homosexual issue and the transgender issue and what we also sometimes call intersex issues. Uh, homosexuality, we're talking about uh, sexual desire toward a person of the same sex. Uh, with intersex connect, uh, conditions, we are talking about biological or chromosomal abnormalities in an individual. Uh, for example, Kleinfelder's syndrome is a male with an XXY 
uh, chromosome. So you have an extra chromosome, which may lead to have certain female features. Um, uh, for example, a, a former student I had uh, shared with me that he had Kleinfelder syndrome, and he uh, began to notice uh, a couple things when he was about 12 or 13. One is like all of his peers, he didn't have attraction towards women, first of all. And secondly, he realized that he uh, was starting to grow breasts as a male. And uh, so through hormonal treatment uh, and through testosterone, uh, they were able biologically, physically, to make adjustments in his life. He now is married, has two children, et cetera. That's an example of what we call an intersex con uh, condition. You also have a condition called androgen insensitivity, uh, where a person is genetically male, XY, but is resistant to the male hormones, uh, to the androgens. And thus, what you see there, you have an XY chromosome, male, but you have physical characteristics of a female developing. Those are called intersex conditions. Uh, historically, uh, physicians have addressed those uh, through uh, biological intervention, that is through physiological intervention. Uh, and uh, in those situations, what we are trying to do is work with in a fallen world, if you will, and yet how can we, the best we can, attain the creational norms that God has established at creation, creating us male and female. So the way we understand a situation like that is out of our understanding of the fall, the second part of the biblical right. narrative. There are all kind of anomalies in our broken, complex world. We know, for example, that people have, um, uh, because of the way the neurons fire in the brain, have certain addiction patterns. And yet in those addiction patterns, we don't say, well, because you're addicted, just go out and drink as much as you want or take as many drugs as you want. Uh, we say, no, you have a moral responsibility uh, to put a curb on that. We know that people, because of certain brain patterns, have anger control issues, anger management issues. And so, again, what we see is biological factors at work because we live in a broken, fallen world. But the mistake many people make ethically is they allow the brokenness, the fallenness of our world to become the ethical norm. So that's one whole area then is where you have these biological abnormalities. Uh, the second area then gets us into the transgender area and there is actually a, a, a term that is used in psychology for that and it's called gender dysphoria. And it means that a person does not identify psychologically, emotionally, with their own biological sex. So a male feels more like a female, a female feels more like a male. Uh, these situations are very different than the intersex conditions. Uh, it is still listed in the uh, DSM-3, which is the diagnostic categories used by psychologists. And uh, what we're dealing with right now in all of the discussions that are going on in our society is with regards to people who have gender dysphoria. Uh, the common term that is often used is a transsexual. Technically speaking, a transsexual is only one who's taken the steps uh, uh, to make changes, either hormonally or through sex change uh, uh, surgery that is done. The situation that we're, we're dealing with now is what are the rights of these people relative to the rights of other people in our society? 
Uh, and I always like to make the point there's a difference between the right to do something and the right thing to do. That gets back to the difference between public policy, where we allow for rights in a society, and then Christian ethics, was, which is the right thing to do. But particularly the debate is one at a public policy level. And I think what is happening is often happens in rights issues is the rights of one minority group uh, sometimes is allowed to have ascendancy over the rights of others. I think as we uh, face this issue as a society, uh, we have to make some distinctions. It seems to me, for example, there's a very important distinction to be made uh, between the use of bathrooms and the use of showers in a high school uh, locker room, for example. Those are two very different issues because you can maintain a certain kind of privacy in a bathroom that you can't in the shower room. And yet they're getting all lumped together. And so the federal mandates that are ha uh, handed down to us are not very helpful. They're not very wise in terms of making these kind of distinctions that could be helpful for a society trying to live together. I mean, do we really want our 12, 13-year-old daughters or sons uh, to walk into the shower room in which there's a person that has uh, opposite sex genitalia? Uh, what that does then to the majority of people to preserve the rights of one individual, I think becomes highly problematic. Uh, this, uh, this issue isn't gonna go away. It's gonna get more complicated, I think. It's gonna become more pronounced. And I think as we talk about this in society, we need to use good common sense kind of ethics, if you will, not just revert back to our biblical and theological language, at least as we have discourse, say, in our communities with a school district and talk about this. Um, many uh, school districts will try to make uh, some kind of accommodations where they can. That's probably easier done in the bathroom. That's probably harder done in the locker room and in the showers. Uh, but, it, but it seems to me that uh, we've got to find resolutions that really can protect our children. That's one of the greatest cares I have. Uh, what are we going to do to our society? What are we going to do by simply saying, okay, we have to accommodate to all of the rights of everyone who comes along and says, uh, I've been inflicted with this uh, situation in my life and my rights have to be protected, even if it infringes on the welfare and the good, the common good of other people. This is this is really good. And I know we're, we're winding down here, but can I ask you one Oh, it's so unfair to say. Quick question. I'll try to make it a quick question, you know, in terms of your ability to respond. But if uh, if a parent calls you and says, hey, they're trying to, you know, um, transgender bathrooms, anyone can choose based on their identity at any given point in time in our community. We, we're going to go to a meeting. Uh, there's school, the school board, the district's going to have a meeting. What would you say to them in a minute about how they should approach that meeting? Posture, content, yeah. demeanor? What would you well, say the, as followers uh, of Jesus? Yeah, I, I, I mean, we've really gotten a bad rap as Christians, as people who don't care, uh, as people who, who, don't, who aren't concerned about justice issues. And obviously, this is kind of a situation we are concerned about justice. We are concerned about a person who struggles, whether it be with an intersex condition or with gender dysphoria. Uh, but so I, I think that when one goes into a discussion like this, it needs to be framed with a great deal of understanding. Uh, many times people speak very emphatically, 
very prophetically and really don't understand the issues, don't understand the differences between the kinds of things we're talking about, or don't even really think be, uh, about the difference between the bathroom situation and the locker room situation. Uh, the issue that has become most pronounced, of course, uh, in the public has been the situation in North Carolina. And uh, various, we have a campus in Charlotte, North Carolina, so I've been talking to people there. And they've said, unfortunately, the bill that was passed was a wrong-headed bill because it merged too many things together. And it didn't sort out several of issues that should have been kept separate. And so that's an example where we jump on the moral bandwagon sometimes, and then we create a situation that even causes greater kickback, greater pushback, and we end up sometimes with worse situations. And so I say all of that to say we need a spirit of love, the spirit of Christ, a spirit of understanding where we know the facts the best we can. And yes, I think we need to, to be able to speak in those situations, but we need to be able to speak in a way that can truly be heard. Uh, I don't really talk about this in the meaning of sex, but I do in one of my other books called Choosing the Good, Christian Ethics in a Complex World. I talk about the need for Christians to be bilingual so that we are, when we're in the public spaces, we can't always quote chapter and verse. We can't refer to creation, fall, redemption, consummation. In those situations, we need to relay our ethical convictions with a different, broader language. We're not sacrificing our Christian convictions at all. So for example, I do some work in the field of bioethics, and if I'm speaking in a secular hospital on end-of-life issues, um, my ethics hasn't changed in terms of my view about assisted suicide and so forth, uh, but I use a different language in those settings. Now, typically I'll say uh, to the group, and there'll often be secularists, multiple religions there, uh, I'll say something to the effect, uh, I am a Christian, and I'm sure that impacts my perspective on these issues. Uh, but I wanna talk to you today about uh, these issues in light of the nature of medicine. I want to talk to you about it in, in light of the tradition of how medicine has been practiced. And so I'll go to the resources in the medical field to talk about the issue. And that's an example of what I mean by uh, being bilingual. I'm motivated to do that because of my Christianity. My Christianity really forms the foundation for my ethic. But in this pluralistic world in which we live, I have to learn to be bilingual to communicate and get a hearing. And I think that's true on the transgender yeah. issues that we're facing today as well. Yeah, you're, you're, you're talking about being a cross-cultural missionary. Is that's correct. Yeah, exactly so, right. And we have to yeah. assume that posture in, in all the conversations in we have. In all conversations yeah. today. Exactly. Uh, Dennis, yeah. you've been extremely generous with your time, uh, very generous with your wisdom. And I know we're going to want to continue these conversations with you down the road as these issues uh, move even more front and center. And, and we need some help thinking through it. So... Thank you very much for your, the conversation today. Thank you for your work at Gordon-Conwell. Thank you for your book, The Meaning of Sex. We'll uh, put links up to all your books. Just one last question before you go. Uh, we always ask this. Any other resources you would direct our listeners to, especially in terms of books, anything that would be helpful um, off the top of your head? Yeah, uh, Book, the book titles are often passing by me. And, That's all right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find what they are. If you know authors, yeah, we'll um, connect. 
and and there's a particular book on transgender. Uh, uh, Mark Yarhouse, been, gender. Mark Yarhouse, yeah. thank you, Walt. Yeah, uh, for you. For yeah. those who want more understanding and knowledge on that, Yarhouse's book I think is really very, very, very helpful. Okay, we'll we'll recommend that as well. So, thank you. Any parting uh, comments, Jason? Well, this is great. I'm I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to take some of this in and and to digest a lot of what Dennis has said. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you're a very busy individual, but this has been a tremendous uh, blessing, uh, not only to us, but I'm sure to our listening audience. So thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Dennis. Jason. Well, great. Just thank a privilege you. to chat with you today. Fun, fun, So much fun to have you here talking about difficult issues, but our faith speaks to all of life, and that's a message we want to communicate to folks. So thank you for joining us if you're listening in, and we look forward to uh, speaking to you again on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.